Welcome to everybody tonight, and uh, thank you for making the effort to come down here, uh, braving what appeared to be very inclement weather. It looks like now it's just going to turn out to be some rain. So we're very happy to have you here for tonight's program, which is Professor Michael I. Myerson discussing Endowed by Our Creator, The Birth of Religious Freedom in America. It's very interesting. Um, I don't know if anybody was reading the New York Times on Sunday, but there were a couple of articles one was talking about a third-party candidate for president named Virgil Good, and it mentioned how that in uh, 2006 he offended many of his colleagues and constituents by attacking Representative Keith Ellison, a Minnesota Democrat, and the first Muslim elected to Congress for taking the oath of office with his hand on a Koran. So clearly, religion remains an object of controversy when it comes to the American political system. Right below that was, an act, was another article talking about a, a radio program with Glenn Beck. And the theme of his radio program that day was, does Mitt Romney's Mormonism make him too scary or weird to be elected to president? Now, the uh, jury's still out on that one. But um, once again, you can see the connection of religion with politics and how it still remains an area of controversy. And of course, I'm sure there are a number of people in this audience who remember the uh, Supreme Court cases back in 2005 regarding the um, display of the Ten Commandments and how they reached different decisions for uh, both Kentucky and Texas. There may be, and I'm not sure, there may be a few people in this audience who will remember uh, John F. Kennedy's presidential campaign back in 1960 and all the questions that were raised about his Roman Catholicism and how that connected with his potential presidency. Um, I'm not sure how many remember JFK's response, which was to say, I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Um, professor Michael Morris Meyerson is Wilson H. Elkins Professor of Law and Piper and Marbury Faculty Fellow at the University of Baltimore School of Law. He is also the author of Liberty's Blueprint, which is an interesting book on the history of the writing of the Federalist Papers, also worth reading in its own right. Please join me in a warm welcome for Professor Meyerson. <laughs> it's all yours. Thanks. I'm Ron Weich. I'm the, the dean of the University of Baltimore School of Law, and I'm very pleased to, Mike asked me to say a few words. I, I won't have to introduce him so much since he's been introduced, but I'll say a couple of words. Um, first of all, I'm very honored to, to have a chance to speak even briefly here at the, the Pratt Library. It's such a wonderful institution, and what a beautiful setting for a talk like this. And a, a real personal pleasure to be able to say uh, a few words about my colleague, Mike Meyerson. Um, Mike, um, uh, you know, is a professor of law. Um, he is, um, let me just say, in in sports, we would call Mike a triple threat um, because he is, first of all, an outstanding teacher uh, at our school. He has been so uh, since 1985 when he joined the faculty. Um, he uh, teaches constitutional law and contracts uh, and, and uh, um, American legal history, and he's someone who we use to teach teachers 
when we want to tell new faculty or adjunct faculty how to do it in the classroom, Mike is the person who is our master teacher. Uh, second, Mike is a very prolific scholar. You heard about his other book. He's published numerous uh, articles in, in uh, leading law journals. Um, and finally, I, I can tell you, um, as a new dean, Mike is an indispensable part of the administration of our law school. He's been a great counselor to me as I've begun my deanship over the last several months and has been a, a key advisor to other deans and, and uh, is the co-director of a very important program at the school called the Baltimore Scholars Program, uh, which uh, recruits uh, individuals from the historically black colleges and universities in Maryland uh, to prepare them for law school. Um, when you become a new dean, as I did four months ago, faculty members welcome you by giving you their books, and uh, it's a nice tradition. Um, I have a pile of them by my bed, and some of them are a little bit dry, some of them are a little bit arcane, um, but I found Mike Meyerson's book, the one you're going to hear him talk about tonight, to be utterly uh, compelling. Um, it is, first of all, incisive legal analysis, it is excellent and comprehensive history, but it's really good literature. It actually is a page turner as you see these characters from American history, um, Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Franklin, uh, struggle as individuals with uh, both their principles and the uh, political needs of the day. Uh, and as their principles develop, uh, Mike shows how uh, th th their uh, own um, um, scruples led them to forge uh, principles that we now take for granted in our society, although, um, as, uh, as was said, uh, th these are subjects still of great controversy, and uh, the issues that Mike illuminates in this book uh, are highly relevant to uh, constitutional debate today, and I think relevant in a society that, as we saw last night, is still very divided. Um, it's still uh, a country that um, has many schisms in it, and uh, it's inspiring to read the book and see how uh, Adams and Washington and Jefferson and the others sought to, to, to heal fissures and find common ground among Americans. So I introduce as well Mike Morrison. Hey, good evening, everyone. I want to thank uh, Pratt for having me. I want to thank uh, my dean for be, uh, overwhelming me with very nice things. Um, and I also want to comment based on the school that uh, several of my students are here. I invited students from my contracts class because they're 1Ls and have no choice. I invited uh, students from my First Amendment class, and I invited uh, my Baltimore scholars to show up. And one thing all of them, and I appreciate that they did that, and one of the things that, I, that, that my students know I'm fanatic about uh, in terms of being obsessive, is the concept of presenting both sides. The idea that you are a better lawyer, a better thinker, a better citizen if you listen, listen with respect to those who, who disagree with you. And in many ways, that's sort of the, the, the way this book began. Uh, you heard mention a moment ago about a case uh, in 2005, two cases, involving the Ten Commandments and whether it was constitutional to place them in public, on public property outside a state capitol or in a courthouse, and the court was bitterly divided. And in one of the cases, there's a majority opinion by Justice Souter, a dissent by Justice Scalia, and being a good constitutional law teacher, I had to teach it. And I read it, and I'm teaching it. And I read one side, the Souter side, and I go, absolutely right, a classic Jeffersonian separation of church and state. You don't allow the Ten Commandments. It's not the role of government to link with religion. I go, beautifully done. Then I read Justice Scalia who says, you know what? We've never avoided religion. It's always been part of our national dialogue from before Washington, through Washington, all the way uh, to modern times. And I thought, he's right too. And I thought, now I got a problem. 
because I, 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 teaching it was hard, even understanding it. And then I had my epiphany that each of them was telling half a story. Each of them had half the truth and was almost willfully ignoring the other half. So I thought, this should be fun. Let's find out who's right. And then I did something that when you're an academic, you have the luxury, which is I decided to let's pretend everyone's right. Let's just live in a fool's world where everyone's telling the truth, everyone's being intellectually honest, and then see where that leads me. Let's not prejudge anything. So I started reading two things. For my history and all my knowledge, I'm reading the original works, the letters and the speeches of all the founders, founders. But I'm also reading the contemporary partisan books, the people who say this is so obviously a Christian nation. And what did they cite? And those who say it's a godless constitution, what did they cite? And I realized that no one really wanted to embrace the fact that there was something valid on the other side. And that, I mean, you could say it, that both the left and the right were wrong, uh, that there were misquotes. Now, there was also truth. At the same time, there was this sort of, of incompleteness. And so what I wanted to do was look at everybody's allegations, everyone's arguments about what the history was, and then go back to the original sources, read the letters, read the speeches. And let me just sort of give you sort of just a couple of, of things that I sort of learned as I'm realizing sort of the way the history goes. Because one side of the history, and this is sort of the classic law school version, is how Jefferson and Madison sort of understood this separation, this wall, that never the twain should meet between religion and government. So I'm reading... Thomas Jefferson is president. There is an outbreak of yellow fever that spares major population centers. And he gives a speech uh, saying that providence in his goodness ended this crisis. I'm thinking that doesn't sound like the total separation. James Madison in his inaugural uh, ends by thanking the, quote, guardianship and guidance of that almighty being whose power regulates the destiny of nations. So suddenly this, this... Clarity isn't there anymore. When I went down to Montpelier, James Madison's home, the front wall, the front of his like, sitting room has all of these religious pictures, all of these pictures of, uh, of, of Mary and Jesus, all of this very religious... Jefferson, too. Something seemed wrong. So then I'm thinking maybe the, maybe the other side is right, the Christian nation side, and I think that's not what I was taught. And interestingly enough, at no point... In American history, did George Washington, John Adams, Madison, Jefferson ever refer to the nation as a Christian nation? In fact, Madison refers to the erroneous concept of a religious nation. So that seems wrong, too. So let me read you about George Washington, who many on uh, sort of the more we-want-religion part of government cite as one of their heroes. And George Washington is surprisingly snarky. You wouldn't think the guy would be that, because he's a, he's a stiff. But let me tell you an interesting moment. He becomes president, and a group of ministers write him. This has been how they communicate. They also like very public letters. And they basically complained that the Constitution had no specific mention of religion. And they said, we are sorry, they wrote to the new, newly elected president, that the Constitution omits an express acknowledgement of the only true God and Jesus Christ in our Magna Carta that the nation's constitution did not mention this. Washington defends the absence of religious reference. 
He says, quote, You will permit me to observe that the path of true piety is so plain as to require little political direction. That's why we didn't put anything in the Constitution. But then he goes more. He says, To the guidance of the ministers of the gospel, training the ignorant, teaching religion is the purpose. And it's the purpose of government, he said, to lead to the progress of morality and science. It is not, he added, the job of government to teach religion. And he's telling this to ministers who are trying to understand the place of government and religion. So George Washington is making a statement, and he becomes one of the heroes of my book, because George Washington was the first American who had to deal with the fact that there were many different religions in different states. One of the things I understood is that if you look at how the nation was created, the different colonies, the colonies were each very localized in their religion. You had a dominant religion. So outside of Rhode Island, all of New England were Congregationalists. They sort of were from the uh, uh, Pilgrims and Puritans. In the south, from Maryland on down, you had the Anglican Church, the Church of England that dominated. But you didn't have strong minority religions. And in fact, that led to extraordinary oppression. You had Baptists being jailed. You had Quakers being expelled and killed. Uh, you had Catholics being driven from one state to one colony to another. And so you had each colony, and then they became states during the Revolutionary War, able to be dominated by one, maybe two, loud religious voices able to oppress other religions. But George Washington is commander-in-chief. He has people from all over, and he knows very early on that religion can divide. And in fact, he develops a philosophy because he is a religious person. He wants to uh, acknowledge God. When the uh, French join the revolution, he has a day of thanksgiving and has all of the military pray to thank God for intervention. He tells his soldiers not to curse, not to uh, be impure, because how can we ask for God's assistance if we act this way? But at the same time, Washington knew that religion was inherently divisive. So, He worked very hard to create a world where everyone was able, everyone was able to practice their faith and that the military itself would not discriminate. He used, he tried essentially to create a unified military. And when he became president, he tried to carry that into into being. So what's going on is you have different strands of American history. You have colonies that are created. There's a myth that people came to America for religious freedom. That's a lie. They didn't want religious freedom. They wanted to be dominating their own faith. They didn't want others to have freedom. And so that was the beginning. And let's take a look at Maryland, my Maryland, which is a very interesting place because it starts off as a quasi-Catholic colony. Uh, its, its, its proprietors are Catholics, even though the majority of the early residents are Protestants. And uh, they try very early on to have tolerance, if you will. They try to allow at least all Christians, if you will, to, uh, to, to pray. Uh, that lasted 30 years. Uh, and then uh, 
the Protestants outnumbered the Catholics, went to the crown in England and said, this isn't working, we want to be like the Church of England. And the Catholics were removed from power. Within 20 years, the, the legislature is complaining that the Papists, Papists keep multiplying. We can't get rid of them. So they deprive them of the right to vote. They deprive them of the right to serve in the legislature. And so suddenly the Catholics are being treated uh, like a despised minority. But, you know, so are other dissenters as well. During the Revolutionary War, uh, an interesting change happened, both in Maryland and around the, the country. See, what people don't recognize is how much hatred there was towards Catholics, how the colonists referred to themselves as a Protestant state, a Protestant colony, a Protestant nation. And so when there was fear that England was going to help its colony, and specifically Quebec, uh, which was predominantly French Catholic, the colonists were terrified that the Catholics would be strong in Canada. So they write, the first Continental Congress writes a letter to the people of England complaining, how can you help those people in Quebec? How can you help a religion that has imposed on the world murder, impiety, and superstition? There was something called Pope Day celebrations where uh, the Pope would be burned in effigy and there'd be a big celebration and occasionally you know, various other Catholics they didn't like or books used by the Catholic Church would be tossed on a big bonfire uh, George Washington heard about this and said to the military, basically, I am outraged that you would consider participating. We want Canada on our side. How can we fight for our freedom if we do not grant them their liberty of conscience? And interestingly enough, that was the end of Pope Day celebrations, not just in the military, but throughout the United States. So um, Maryland is part of this. So Maryland is going to allow Catholics to, to vote and be part of the legislature. Uh, it wasn't until actually the mid-1820s that Maryland finally passed the so-called Jew Bill. Finally, this is, you know, this is pretty long into our history, they allowed Jews finally to serve in the legislature. Uh, but it actually wasn't until 1960 that Maryland got rid of the requirement that you had to believe in God in order to have various government uh, positions. So there's a battle going on as each state is defining its view of freedom and religion. And what I want to do is talk about one state in particular, because for a variety of reasons, one state, and that's the state of Virginia, had a vision, and it had a couple of visionaries, George Mason, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington, that eventually became the national image. And this is the birth of freedom, religious freedom in America. It came out of the fact that while all the different states other than largely Virginia were trying to figure out how to deal with these people they didn't like, Mason, Madison, Jefferson, and Washington are trying to figure out how can we unify. Let me tell two stories. The first is each um, state, after we declared independence, needed to come up with their own constitution. So Virginia in 1776 is drafting a Declaration of Rights. And George Mason is trying to end this religious conflict, the murders, the imprisonment, and all the rest. So he writes a law, uh, and it says that, and this is the, sort of the key language, that all men should enjoy the fullest toleration in the exercise of religion. 
all men should enjoy the fullest toleration in the exercise of religion. James Madison, 25 years old, painfully shy, sees a problem. Now, he's too shy to propose an amendment. So he kind of tugs at the, the sleeve of Patrick Henry, who isn't afraid to talk. And Patrick Henry proposes one of the most important editorial changes in the history of freedom. Instead of the fullest toleration of freedom, it becomes all men are equally entitled to free exercise of religion, eliminating the word toleration. What's wrong with tolerance? Tolerance, you see, implies that I have the right to be tolerant or not. I am giving you permission to be odd. As George Washington put it, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if by the indulgence of one class of people that the other exercised their inherent natural right. That it is not by the grace of majority that you have the right to liberty of conscience. It is what you get because you are human, because you are given this freedom of the mind. And so slowly there is a change in power. It is no longer a dominant religion and others. It's basically all human beings uh, have this right. Now let me interrupt and talk about something interesting about the development of history at this point. Because one of the uh, bits of complaint I get, and I get complaints about the book, is sort of why should we care about what those people did? What, what's the relevance? And of course, uh, these are slave owners. These are people who are disenfranchising women. And I would say that the framers messed up race so seriously, we're still working that out. They didn't do a whole lot better with women either. But on religion, they largely got it right. On religion, they were not only ahead of their time, they're ahead of a lot of the world today. For a variety of reasons, not many of which I understand, the framers saw something about how to deal with religious pluralism. Racial pluralism, not so much. Economic, no. But as to how to think about religion and religious division, that they got well. And so this moment where James Madison is saying it's not about toleration, it's about inherent right, is a major moment of intellectual development. The next major moment is after the revolution happens. And again, Virginia is trying to figure out what to do about religion and government. They had been part of the Church of England. They had had a tax to benefit one particular church. Patrick Henry, the guy whose sleeve had been pulled on, give me liberty and give me death, proposes a moderate tax that could benefit the support of teachers of the Christian religion. Madison and Jefferson are appalled. It's not the job of government, they say, to pay for tax, to raise taxes for religion. So Jefferson has a plan. He writes to Madison, what we have to do is devoutly pray for Henry's death. <laughs> Jefferson, okay, Madison's a little more politically astute. So the first thing Madison does is get Patrick Henry elected as governor. And so therefore he's away from the state house and, his, and people who aren't as politically astute. Uh, become office. He then, apparently Patrick Henry had two young daughters he wanted to get married and he thought in the state house it'd be easier and apparently it was but he was no longer able to lead this battle. Next, Madison um, gets a delay. He says, look, this issue is too important. Let's have the people decide. So he has a vote to delay for six months considering Patrick Henry's bill and he has 
a pamphlet voted on that has on one side the name, the, 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 the statute that Henry wants. On the back are the names of everyone who voted to oppose giving this to the people. And it's, of course, this pamphlet distributed everywhere. And in the next general election, a lot of the Henry supporters lose because they weren't, of course, supporting the people. The next thing he does is write what's called the Memorial and Remonstrance, which is essentially a petition. The way politics worked in those days is that if there was a big issue, uh, you'd write a petition, you'd get people to sign it, it would be sent to the legislature, piled on their desks. Madison anonymously, it's not until many, many years later that people knew they were signing James Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance. Remonstrance is basically a plea. Please consider this. And among the statements he makes in this is that religion is wholly exempt from the cognizant of civil society and the legislature in particular. It is not the job of government to pay for religion. And it's a beautiful discussion about why religious freedom matters. So you end up with part with a philosophical argument as to why it is not the job of government and the mind is free. Let me tell you a second strand in the development of American religious freedom. George Mason, our old hero, sends a copy of Madison's memorial to George Washington. See, George Washington is, he's not king, but he's, everyone wants his support. If GW is behind you, you're going to win. He is universally acclaimed, and open prints, he probably should be. So, Mason says, hey, this is really cool stuff, please read it. Washington writes back and says, look, I haven't had a chance to read it, but let me tell you something. Two statements. Number one, I am not amongst those who are alarmed at the thought of making people pay to the support of their own religion. And then he adds the following. As long as those who declare themselves Jews, Mohammedans, and otherwise can obtain proper relief. So let's stop right there for a moment. Most people don't even aware that the framers were aware that Muslims existed. They barely kind of know that Jews were around, but they sort of like ignore that. And here's George Washington saying, you know what? Even though they are both numerically incredibly small, they still cannot be ignored in this law. So making them pay for Christian teachers is simply wrong. But then he goes on in the letter to say something that I think is, is pivotal to understand freedom in America. He then says, you know what, though? As matters stand now, I wish the bill would die an easy death because it would be more productive of peace in the state. If we pass this law, it will rankle. It will convulse the state. It's a very political view of religious freedom and the limited role of government that if we keep religion as part of a political debate, it will not unite, it will divide. And I think George Washington's philosophy, and then his president, he puts this into effect, is the second major strand in developing religious freedom, that we do not want religious disputes. We don't want the battle, the convulsion. One of the things I learned in my research that I did not know at all is there is a third strand in the development of religious freedom. What no, now, again, I've only been studying this stuff for 25 years, and yet I had no idea... None, that James Madison's memorial was not the most popular. There was one that got three times the numbers of signatures, and it was written by the Baptist General Committee. 
And it was a religious argument about limiting the role of government in religion. They wrote that, quote, the church of Christ is not of this world. The church of Christ is not of this world. Then we cannot see how the sheriffs and the county courts are to be employed in managing money to support the teachers of the Christian religion. That it was not the job of government. There was no such thing as a Christian nation because the religion extended beyond national boundaries. Three times as many people signed that. And so what you end up with, and this is one one of the insights I had, is that we nowadays sort of say, oh, if you're really religious, you are the religious right, or various other things that always sound a little hostile to me, you must want government to be supporting this sort of funding and that sort of uh, observation of religious uh, practice. And there's a whole strand of American history, and we'll talk about one man in particular who embodies this, that said, no, religion is too important to be polluted by government, Religion is too uh, ethereal to be part of contemporary political debate. And so the three strands, the philosophical, the political, and the religious all combined. And when the legislature came back and looked at the petitions, they decided we will not push this bill. It died in committee. James Madison, who has an underestimated ability as a political thinker, then takes advantage of the moment. Because there has been this this understanding that's been created, a a groundswell in support of truly limiting how government can mess up religion. And so Madison brings back to life a bill that Jefferson had written many years earlier, a bill to establish religious freedom. And let me tell you a moment. Let me read you one of the parts of the intro to this bill. Thomas Jefferson writes, uh, basically, that whereby almighty God had created the mind free, Any attempt by government to censor or punish people's religious beliefs is, quote, a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. So if we, as government, try to punish individuals for their religious belief, it is a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. Now, there were some religious people in the legislature who wanted to change the law so that it read that basically... Any attempt to censor was, quote, a departure from the plan of Jesus Christ, the holy author of our religion. Same law that basically still said government couldn't do anything in terms of funding or punishing, but now the introduction focused on Jesus Christ, the holy author of our religion. Madison and Jefferson are furious. James Madison, uh, who also gets snarky here, writes... Better proof of reverence for that holy name would be not to profane it as a topic of legislative discussion. Uh, And together and with others, they remove the sectarian reference so the language reverts to the holy author of our religion. James Madison is celebrating. He is saying that we have freed the mind from governmental oppression. Thomas Jefferson looks at the story about the editorial battle and says something that I think we need to have part of our current dialogue. Because, by the way, you'll notice he's still using religious language, holy author of our religion, God has made the mind free, yet, because his final version is non-sectarian, he writes the following to James Madison. The new language proved 
that the law, quote, is meant to comprehend the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan, the Hindu and the infidel of every denomination. You see, to Thomas Jefferson, saying words like God was not being part of a team. The reason I ch- one of the reasons I chose the, the title Endowed by Our Creator, <clears throat> other than the fact that no one had used it yet in a book, was that the uh, language uh, from the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, is that Jefferson did what the framers did that we are afraid to do. His language was deliberately bilingual. Those of an orthodox religious faith could hear words, and you see all this during the the last political uh, campaign, <clears throat> where Mitt Romney is quoting from this all the time. Santor, uh, Senator Santorum did as well. Oh, see, this is classic religion. They said our rights are not from government. They are from our creator, which we can talk about in a moment because when you challenge the health care law, you don't cite Leviticus. You cite the Commerce Clause, but I digress. Uh, but the idea that rights we are endowed by our creator was viewed then and now by certain segments of the population as speaking about their faith. By contrast, what Jefferson is saying, and he knew it then in the Declaration, is that language is not exclusionary. You can believe any way you want about how we got created. It doesn't presuppose a a particular form of monotheism or divinity or anything else. He uses the phrase in the Declaration, nature's God which could simply be how things happen and the glory of life. And he said, <clears throat> both there and in the law, that simply using this sort of language isn't meant to exclude. <clears throat> so they were capable of being bilingual. We now don't do that, and you saw that in the political debates. You saw that you had to be on one side or the other, and I think we really lose something when we are afraid to have any sort of, of religious language. Um, in, uh, one of the things about my book is that I was committed to changing my mind if I was convinced something was wrong that I, in my own thought process. Let me tell you about one of uh, my heroes in the book uh, and, and sort of what he taught me. A Baptist minister named John Leland, very, very devout, very orthodox, if you will, in his view of religion, um, yet at the same time a fanatic believer in keeping government away from religion. So, for example, he used to write that when he sees a man working on the Sabbath, he is sad. But when he sees the sheriff arrest that man for working on the Sabbath, he's angry. He wanted people to be part of his religion, but he said when properly constituted, The government welcomes all, Jew and Christian, Mohammedan and Hindu, pagan and atheist, all of them are equally welcomed. This is the person, by the way, who insisted that James Madison fight for a First Amendment, religious freedom in the Constitution. The original Constitution had no specific protection for individual religious freedom more importantly perhaps, had no specific rule saying the government should not fund and support religion. So James Madison basically only got elected to the Constitutional Convention, uh, to the State Ratifying Convention, only got elected to the House of Representatives because he was able to convince 
John Leland that he was going to fight to support religious freedom. People have called that the most important political promise ever made. Not only because it was one of the few that was kept, but also because it set in motion specific language about protecting religion. Let me tell you one other aspect of John Leland, though. Um, one thing, by the way, that and I'm, in a, I'm in a wonderful library filled with, with wonderful books, but you know what I found out? There are a lot of books out there, and there are a lot of old books out there, and uh, I don't want to say anything bad, because I, I love this library, and I love, I, I love books, but uh, the Internet is a source now, and don't, I'm not talking Wikipedia. Uh, the Internet is a source where you can, through Google Books and others, find old publications, old meaning like 1830. So I found things like the collected works of John Leland, published in 1830. I don't know where one, I mean, I, mean, I guess at Harvard or, or Berkeley's library you could find it. And so you're able to begin to read these people an extensive language uh, that they used. And he had a line that became my motivation in writing this book. He wrote, truth is to history as the soul is to the body. Well, that's really cool. Because you can have history without truth, but then it's really just lifeless. Then, it's just, then there's something almost, pardon the word, unholy about doing history unless you're willing to go where the truth is. So actually, I changed the subtitle of my book. The original sub, I like the, t- I like the, new t- I like the title, that was going to stay. But the original subtitle was The Creation of America's Civic Religion. Because one of the things I had been taught is that words like in God we trust, there's a great phrase called ceremonial deism. Ceremonial deism is sort of the concept that, oh, we say these things, but nobody means. Like when a presidential candidate says, God bless the United States. Everyone goes, yay, but they're not sharing religion. They're just sharing the, the person who spoke. And it's meaningless. What I found as I was doing my research is that when people in the day were going, uh, were, were praying before in the Continental Congress, were having members of the clergy speak to the army and all the rest, they actually meant it. That there was a large segment of the population, including the framers, for whom this was not just ceremonial, but deeply felt religious conviction. And so what we end up with are these two strands that the framers managed to balance, but we're still struggling to balance. It is the sense that government can pollute religion, that government doesn't fund, that if you establish favor one religion, you are telling others that they are not the same quality of citizen, that they are outsiders, and that will inevitably lead to division. But on the other hand, George Washington, but most of them understood that religion could unite as well as divide, like the Declaration of Independence, for example. And so they weren't afraid to have non-sectarian language in their, in their Thanksgiving Day uh, proclamations, in various government speeches. They weren't afraid to acknowledge something. They wanted to respect those who did not share specific religious beliefs. They were not afraid, in other words, to do something we're terrified of doing, which is balancing competing concerns. They were willing to accept a sentence that said, religion is capable of unspeakable evil and majestic good. They would accept that. That's almost a paraphrase of something John Adams said. And they were willing to try to actualize that. So I want to do a lot of Q&A, but let me sort of end 
uh, by reading sort of my thoughts uh, on, on how they, they, they tried to balance this. Most people know about Thomas Jefferson's famous line about a wall of separation between church and state. And for many, actually most people think it's actually part of the Constitution, uh, it was a letter written to Connecticut Baptists, John Leland and his friends basically, saying, you know what, I disapprove of the states when they favor one religion, tax others to support a favored religion. There should be, Madison uh, Jefferson writes, a wall of separation between church and state. The trouble with a wall as a metaphor is that various times the Supreme Court will say the wall must be high and impregnable. And that was the attack Justice Scalia was saying, but wait a minute. Whether you want to, uh, you know, we've often had acknowledgments of religion. We have cities named Corpus Christi and um, St. Louis. I mean, we're aware of religion. We say the pledge. We do, we're aware. We don't just shun all religion in all government speech. And then I I found the following uh, letter from James Madison. Uh, Someone had written to him uh, um, shortly after he became president, basically saying, isn't it great that the people of the United States retained the Christian religion as the foundation of their civil, legal, and political institutions and consented to tolerate, that old word again, other religions? And this was, you see, the battle fought even then. Is that the basis of American freedom? Madison writes, of course not. Madison writes that the whole experience of America is to include all religions. We don't just tolerate. And then he writes the following. While government should not be involved in religion, this is a tough principle. I must admit, he said, that it may not be easy in every possible case, to trace the line of separation between the rights of religion and civil authority with distinctions to avoid collusions and doubts on unessential points. Madison's metaphor, religion and civil authority, is different from church and state. Why? Because church and religion are not the same. A church is part of a sectarian religious denomination, representing a particular faith and institutions supporting it. By contrast, the word religion includes all expressions of a connection to a divine power. Madison and Jefferson both understood that the relation of government to a denominational interest was dangerous and different from the relationship to the general concept of religion. And I think if you think of both of those metaphors, you have a lot of wisdom. To prevent the evils of classic establishment, You want a wall of separation, a rigid barrier. But when evaluating government's involvement with generic religion, not a sectarian church, but general religion, a line of separation is more apt. The line doesn't connote a wall that can't be met, and it also doesn't connote something that is kept totally distinct. Madison's line retains a flexibility that a wall does not. It allows for statements like George Washington's inaugural address, acknowledging providence. It doesn't allow government to favor. It doesn't allow a Ten Commandments to be put inside a courthouse because that favors one or a set of faiths. Putting Madison's line in place of Jefferson's wall does not unify church and state. Madison noted that in drawing the line, it's hard to avoid doubts on unessential points. 
but for those essential principles of separation of religion and government, those that were created, fought for, and preserved by the founders, that line should be indelible. Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions? Yeah. Hope some, hope people, yes, sir. How do you explain Christmas Day because it started 100 years after Washington died? Uh, what happens with American history is that you have cycles. And one of the amazing paradoxes of America is that we are a democracy where a majority, and sometimes a strong majority, are religious. And so during the Civil War, during the Second Great Awakening, and then the Civil War, and then later on, there were these pushes by denominational groups. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story about, uh, not Christmas Day, some, you know what else I learned? U.S. mails, the U.S. post office delivered mail on Sunday until the 19-teens. Why? Well, it started out during the war, the War of 1812. They needed to make sure that they had whatever they needed for the military. But religious folk were saying, hey, this is desecrating the Sabbath. After the war, they said, okay, now you can uh, stop. Now you don't have to have Sunday delivery. So the senator, a man named Senator Johnson, wrote this extraordinary document that the majority of senators voting for saying, if we were to do this, we would be favoring one religion in violation of the Establishment Clause. So the framers and those in the 18-teens refused. John Leland, my hero, opposed giving people time off for Sunday mail service. He warned about an ecclesiastical political power. So I would argue that many of the framers would never, let alone the fact that Christmas wasn't celebrated at that day, at that time, but many of them would have been very upset at the idea of, of a Christmas Day celebration. However, let me now contradict myself, because that's what I do. The question is not, would they have voted for this in the 1870s or 80s? The question is, after it had been an accepted part of American culture for more than a century, would they have risked the upheaval to change it? And I am fairly confident George Washington would have said, are you guys crazy? Leave it alone. <laughs> so there is a difference in my world, which may be just a law professor line drawing, between what you do from the outset and what you allow to continue. So I'm going to have it both ways. Um, kind of related, I guess, but it seems like what's different now, maybe in this country, maybe I'm wrong, but that the question is not so much just, you know, let people do what they want to do in their own little world, but that it comes down to laws that are being made for everyone, you know, to allow abortion, to, uh, I forget, there was another one I was thinking of, but... Um, Gay marriage might be a good one to talk about as well. Yeah, yeah, but things that, you know, people have to decide together that um, confront uh, different religious beliefs. So what do you do there? Well, that's, okay, so there's an interesting, and I think, okay, first of all, it's an incredibly difficult question. Because one of the issues was, do you want government to pollute religion? And the framers were pretty clear that that was not good. The question is, how much involvement do you want religion in government? And one of the realities is that, um, that religious people are part of a democracy, so they should be able to participate. Uh, I would say sort of there are a couple of answers. Uh, one is that I think that uh, people are motivated by a lot of different purposes, uh, but since we're talking about elections, let me talk about the election of 1800 to give you an example of where I think maybe an answer lies. I think, the, bottom line, I have no good answer. Uh, election of 1800, John Adams, who had ignored a lot of Washington's teaching, it had a very Christian Thanksgiving message, uh, ran a campaign against Thomas Jefferson. 
And the uh, and the Adams and by the way, it made the last campaign look like look like a fifth grade picnic. Uh, they are vicious. They are rumor mongering. And there's a whole line of attack on Thomas Jefferson. Do you want a pure president or an atheist? Thomas Jefferson will steal your Bibles from your children. Uh, and then Thomas Jefferson's folk respond by saying, do you want an established church again or do you want freedom? And here's the hope. Freedom won. Adams lost. And he later on in life said that there is nothing the American people dislike more than government involvement in religion. And it is my Thanksgiving proclamation that tossed me out of office. So part of this is a very hard point, which is you have to educate people to the fact that their particular religion maybe going back to an earlier point, if it wins today, they may lose the next time around. That you need to educate people, a John Leland approach, that if you want true religious freedom, you need to respect that for others. Uh, on the other hand, issues like abortion, slavery in the 1860s, prohibition uh, in the early part of the 20th century, are issues where morality and religion get very much intertwined. Um, the, the answer is... Uh, in a world of political winners and losers, there's no good answer, except that it should live in a world of respect. And if everyone respects each other, hopefully they listen to each other. But I think eventually the danger is, and if you watch some of the gay marriage uh, ads, a lot of it was, this is what God said, this is how I'm voting. And I think what's interesting is in Maryland, you know, we know how that vote turned out. I think it's people being convinced that their religion doesn't necessarily need the government to survive and thrive which is one of the lessons of American history. Why are there more religious Americans than people, say, in England with the Church of England? And I would argue it's because government doesn't do religion very well. And once the federal government stepped out of religion and the territories open up, it was like a Holmesian marketplace of ideas. All these new religions could come in and the people could be aware. And what happens if you get, if you get power, you then go back to wanting government to help. I think the true wisdom is if you want your religious freedom that you got because government wasn't involved, maybe you want to keep government not being involved even when you have the power. If you're sitting in the legislature trying to follow the Constitution and you're dealing with an issue like abortion or the time, the time when life begins, you have the conflict of science, religion, ethics, morality, and the church. And it seems to me that you ought to be wrestling with the first four of those things in the church or, you know, what we saw in this past election, the evangelical wing, which is dic trying to dictate what the law should be, should be out of that discussion um, of, uh, of the, the people who are trying to determine what the, what the law should be or how to create a new law. Let me tell you my problem. Not that I disagree at all with the idea that, that you don't want a church to dictate what non-adherents do. At the same time, when a Martin Luther King is talking about his reading of the Bible, leading to equality and helping the poor, I'm going, yeah, go for that. When Abraham Lincoln in the second inaugural is saying that um, slavery, that the Civil War is the price God is imposing on us for the sin of slavery, I'm kind of happy. So I don't know if I'm being a major hypocrite by only liking religion involved when it supports me. Uh, and that's why, I, that's, I mean, and again, I will, as my students know, I will plead guilty to hypocrisy. Uh, but on this one, I'm really unclear. I do think there's a danger. And I think the simple lesson, maybe the distinction is, one of the things about being an American 
is you have the absolute right to practice your religion and the absolute, I would argue, political and moral obligation not to insist that anyone else do the same. So maybe that's where religion and morality sort of blend. But, you know, there are a lot of you know, wonderful human beings for whom religion and morality are not distinguishable. And I don't know what to do about, you know, whether they want to help the poor or ban abortion. I don't know what I want to do with that. The question was, I, from what you had said earlier, I can see the religion, but it's when the church and the ideology of a particular expression of religion gets in the way of a lawmaker trying to make the, make the decision. So he can have his own spiritual idea, and I guess he can write the law, and he can argue if this is moral, ethical, scientific, and religion. But that issue of the church with its own ide- ideology seems somewhat difficult for me. The word I would use, it's dangerous. But again, but if you have the evangelical churches going out for Romney, and you have the African-American churches with the souls to the polls in, or- in Ohio going out to vote... I mean, do you feel the same threat from each? And, or are they, or is it both good, or is it unstoppable? Do we have to rely, as we told a moment ago, on something other than law, and something other, almost an American ethos that people need to keep their religion, uh, make sure their religious fervor doesn't infringe on other people's freedom? I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm giving you an answer, but these are the problems I, I deal with. I think you raise really important points. One, to the framers... Uh, when we were endowed with certain inalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what role did religion play in making the we white men and exclude slaves, women, and, and in this case now, uh, unborn children? Okay, um, I think, well, I, let, me, I, let, me, let me sort of unpack the question and make sure I answer it. Uh, in part, when they used, they had a very... When they talked about religion and government and rights, part of it was a very sort of beautiful sense that, in other words, that there are inherent rights. We are born with a mind. We should be able to be free to use it. We are born with dreams. We should be able to fulfill them. At the same time, of course, you know, in a place of slavery, we have religious folk using the Bible to justify slavery, using it to justify all sorts of oppression, open friends, not that different than we do today. So... um, it goes, I mean, um, let me ask a question to you, make sure I'm understanding your question. I would simply say this goes to the fact that religion can be, viewed, can be used to elevate and unite or to oppress and divide. It doesn't, it, is that an answer, or that, 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 that respond to your question? Did, did not, I dance not, around not it really. so well? I'm saying why did they, why did they back off on... Uh... On, on, on freedoms for everybody. Ah, that's, okay, okay. Uh, and I think it is because of several things. Uh, part of it is that they're human and flawed. Part of it is that they are economically tied into slavery, which might have blinded them as well. Um, I'll go the other way, which is my, my, my question goes the exact opposite. Why in a world where they couldn't see that African Americans were full people, that women were full people, why were they able to see that agnostics and dissenters were full people? I, don't know why, I, I want to know why they saw that, and, and I'm not sure why. But that's, that's, and I will tell you, though, if you look at American and Anglo-American history, the first battles for, religious, for, for freedom of speech were battles of religious speech. The first battles for equality were for religious equality. So I think they were starting something we're still benefiting from. 
And the fact that it was imperfect and limited doesn't mean it wasn't a good start or, you know, for, for what it was. But, I mean, how can I put it? I want my heroes, and they, they all tend to disappoint. <laughs> isn't part of this, well, two things. One, that we've embodied all of this, as, as Tocqueville tells us, in endless lawsuits. That is not his words, but I'll uh, assume that he would agree with those words. The other is that this is a, an evolutionary thing, that the expansion of the concept of men from being white, free men of property mm-hmm. to being everyone in this room, presumably, and it's also, just to relate something that's both personal and local, which is we have just allowed, we have just agreed that we will have same-sex marriage in Maryland. I got married, well, you, you, you know my wife, so I need to explain this is not, the, my, not my, not, this is my previous wife, what she would call my starter wife, spouse. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> In Maryland, you couldn't get married unless you got married by a minister. You could not get married by, a, by a, any government official, a clerk of the court, a judge. Forget the argument about how much you want, people wanted later on. It was a great issue that you wanted to be married by a judge. But no one, and I at that point talked to several lawyers about this, and nobody could think of the, how anyone had standing to challenge that particular stupid rule. And eventually it disappeared, but now we have marriage... And the solution, from my point of view, simply was that the the rabbi that my family was partisan to said he thought the rule was unjust, and therefore he would marry my my not Jewish wife and me because he couldn't because the injustice was greater. Now, I assume that if Abe Shaw were still alive, he would not do that. Whether he would marry two Jewish men is a question I'm certainly not going to dig him up and find the answer to. But the, the, the evolution in all of this that I'm pointing to. Well, let me talk. I think the evolution is that. Well, this is part of my the mystery to me of, of the American founders is that they, if you look at where we are, and you know those who want to be originalists and say the Constitution means what it said, I can't believe in a Constitution that doesn't let women be members of the bar, you know, and, and I think, and many, many other things, and I think the evolution, Justice Ginsburg, I, I met her and I said, I teach a course in American legal history. What's the one thing you want me to tell my students? And she said, the history of America is the expansion of the word we in we the people. That is the American story. What I find inspiring, despite the negativity, is that as to religion, it was extraordinarily expansive. It's more expansive than many people want it today and many places in the world are suffering because they haven't evolved to where the framers did as to religion. So I think we can take their spirit, their, their courage, and then apply it to all the other forms of expansion of who the we, the people are, all the evolution where we keep on evolving. We're not done yet. But as to religion, the United States of America was lucky enough to have a really good start. Okay, thank you so much. Been a very stimulating conversation. Um, Professor Meyerson is going to be sitting at the table there by the fireplace, and the Ivy Bookshop is outside in the hallway when they have copies of his book for sale. You can uh, go out and get one and read even more about this fascinating subject. Thank you for coming tonight.